This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, this is Sean Vincent. Thanks for listening in today. Today is part two of our podcast on the Brenna Kavanaugh case. I'll be joined by Don West. He's National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and veteran criminal defense attorney. Also, our friend Steve Moses. He's a CCW Safe contributor and a well-regarded firearms instructor. Uh, last week uh, was part one of the Brenna Kavanaugh case. We looked at the practical and tactical lessons from the, the Brenna Kavanaugh case. This week's going to be one of our law school episodes. I'm going to talk a lot with Don about the legal ramifications of this uh, twisting, turning, winding uh, road that both Brenna Kavanaugh and her boyfriend Mark Gray went through in the aftermath of this shooting. Uh, before the end of this podcast, I am going to talk to Steve Moses about you know, when is it appropriate to chase a intruder out of your house and when is it best strategically to stay put in a highly defensible place. But let me get you caught up on this case in case you hadn't listened to last week's podcast. It's a real unusual case. Brenda Kavanaugh was the former police commissioner in her little town in uh, New Hampshire. And she uh, was divorced from her husband, uh, living with Mark Gray, her daughter, uh, through a party and uh, advertised it on social media uh, a night where she was supposed to be staying with her father. One of Brenna Kavanaugh's daughter's friends saw it on social media, thought the party was at her mom's house. So he shows up, 16-year-old kid shows up at around... 2 to 3 o'clock in the morning at Kavanaugh's house. It's dark, but he finds a door that is unlocked and opened. He comes inside looking for the remnants of this party. Ends up on the top floor, which is where the master bedroom is. And they, Brenna Kavanaugh and Mark Gray, wake up and discover there's an intruder in their house. Brenna Kavanaugh says, get your gun. They chase this teenager out of the house. Uh, he leaves the house. Then they chase him across the lawn uh, to his pickup, which is parked on the street. Uh, the kid tries to get away. He, at one point, he backs into a telephone pole. It looks like Brenna Kavanaugh tried to get the license plate number off the front that put her in front of the truck. He puts it in gear, this teenager, and uh, she allegedly yells, shoot or shoot him. And Mark Gray, who has the pistol, does. He fires a total of six shots. Three of them hit the vehicle. None of them hit the teenager who was able to escape unscathed uh however uh last podcast we talked about how it's very likely uh that uh well it's the fact that brenna kevin and mark gray went too far when they chased the intruder outside the front door across their lawn and into the street the justification for using deadly force against an intruder in the home had expired when that intruder left the house uh, and therefore, both Brenna Kavanaugh and Mark Gray were charged with crimes associated with the shooting. Uh, in a weird twist of how the law works, Mark Gray went to trial and he was acquitted on all counts. Brenna Kavanaugh went to trial as an accomplice to the shooting and she was convicted. She later appealed that conviction. The appellate court agreed that she should have been given a self-defense 
instruction and that case was set to go back to a second trial we told you last week that um, she had reached a plea deal with the uh, prosecutors but we didn't quite know what that was yet uh, stick around to the end of this podcast i'll let you know how this case turned out um you know i i think that these podcasts are important there it's a it's a it gets a little bit into the the legal weeds but i want you guys to know that even in a self-defense shooting where nobody was hurt how complicated the legal defense can be uh after the fact uh, and this is a great example of how crazy it can get so i'm going to uh, move into our discussion with Don West and Steve Moses about the legal ramifications of the Brenna Kavanaugh case. Thanks again for listening. That's interesting. So, so Mark Gray was charged with felony attempted first degree assault, two counts of reckless conduct with a deadly weapon criminally threatening with a deadly weapon and criminal mischief. Uh, Brenna Kavanaugh was convicted of being an accomplice to attempted first degree assault, a felony, and an accomplice to criminal mischief, a misdemeanor. And I wonder if, and this is interesting here, like you say, Don, that the jury for Mark Gray took into account that essentially uh, a once law enforcement officer of some authority had instructed him to do something that that they're holding Mark Gray to a different standard than when they look at Brenna Kavanaugh uh, with what she should know from law enforcement. They judge her more harshly for her uh, decision to... It's almost like she has the motive here and Mark's just the the vehicle for it is that is that kind of what we're talking about well i i think so uh, i think they may have deferred uh in that sense that he was misled if they otherwise thought that what he did was legally culpable and given him the benefit for that i don't know where they both were where she was versus where he was when that shot or then later shots were fired because I mentioned earlier, there was some suggestion that she was positioning herself near the front of the vehicle to get the license tag when the first shot was fired. He may not have been standing right there. He may have been off to the side or in a, in a position. And he may have believed that when she said shoot or shoot him, that he truly was protecting her whether he actually saw the vehicle moving in her direction so that he had an independent ability to assess the kind of danger she was in. Uh, It sounds like it happened pretty fast, and my guess is that he was given the benefit of the doubt that when she said to do that, that he, he gave credit, full force and credit, to her instruction because she was in the position to be the victim at that point. She had the law enforcement experience, and he simply did what she was telling him to do, assuming that if she, if it wasn't legal, she wouldn't have 
told him to do it. Having done it, interesting. Yeah. I, I, we had one case that I remember talk, seeing and talking about in Florida where a police officer, I think a deputy sheriff, was being physically beat up, attacked uh, on the ground by uh, a criminal. And a motorist came up by, or, and while the police officer was on his back being beaten savagely by this individual, the bystander was there and was armed, and the police officer told him to shoot the guy. And he did. And he did. And uh, I think killed the guy. And of course, no charges were filed because it was later determined that he was, in fact, defending another and one can imagine it wouldn't take too many variations of that scenario for the person to have some criminal liability, even though they had been told to shoot somebody. Well, and remember we talked recently with Tatiana Whitlock about the, the Herman case. She was home with her children when there was a pretty violent intruder who tracked her down, and she was on the phone with her husband who had... Uh, taken her to the range and instructed her on how to fire the revolver that she had in her hand. And when the intruder comes into the same uh, space as them, he instructs her over the phone to take the shots. And she does. And I don't know, St- Steve, uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is um, taking instruction from other people when you're the when you're the one with the your the, the gun in your hand, it, you, you can you, can you ever substitute someone else's judgment for your own in a life or death situation? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> Tell the, me, talk about your thought process there. The the the, the yes part is that uh, you can take that instruction if you're in a position where your life is imminently in danger and your hesitation is putting you at risk. And so telling someone who obviously is uh, hesitating or failing to do something that a reasonable person would believe would be justified under those circumstances, uh, I I can certainly see that happening. On the other hand, if you are that person, you need to remember that ultimately you are responsible for your actions uh, and the other person is is really not. Now, they may be culpable, as it, obviously it was in this particular case, but that's not going to clear you. So it's kind of, uh, yeah, under some circumstances and no under some other circumstances, but in the case of someone who is telling you to do something that turns out to be unjustified or unwise, even if you believe it to be unwise at that time, then you need to realize you're ultimately responsible for that. So that's one of the things that we talk about when we train House of Worship security team members is that uh, you need to remember that regardless of the instructions given to you by someone in authority within that organization, the law really doesn't care uh, they're going to find you ultimately culpable, so you need to, you know, you need to choose wisely. You know, when we talked about the Gerald Streetman case, Gerald Streetman's the the MMA professional fighter, veteran Marine Corps sniper, 
the lawyer in the book he wrote about it called The Finishing Machine, and, and Gerald Treatment was rear-ended at night. The driver was drunk and angry and shouting threats and approaching him, even though Strebent had armed himself with a, a rifle. Uh, he Strebent got on the phone with 911 and was talking to the operator. The lawyer, Mike Arnold, talked about how he felt that this trained Marine sniper was, in a way, looking to an authority for a no-shoot-shoot instruction. And... I just think that reinforces Steve's point there that when you're uh, a concealed carrier or a home defender and you have the weapon in your hands that you need to be the one that has already thought about these scenarios and is using your best judgment on that. Nobody else can make that decision for you. And the training that you've had or the exercises you've gone through to study the circumstances that people have gone through, which is the whole gist of our podcast, that, that all comes to account then. Because if somebody tells you to do something wrong, that's not going to exonerate you. Uh, and then Don, I mean, I think too, also, if you're, if you end up verbally instructing somebody else to do something, you, I think this case proves you take on a little bit of that liability. Sean, let me add something real quick. Yeah, and, Steve. Uh, just not to be the devil's advocate, but uh, being a sniper uh, overseas, in a lot of instances, the the sniper would request authority to engage someone that did not necessarily at that time uh, represent an imminent threat to them or others. So sure. that could be someone that is uh, planting an IED. Uh, it could be someone that has a, uh, a perhaps a cell phone and is controlling, obviously controlling others to your position in order to close and engage upon you. And in those particular instances, uh, those rules of engagement are definitely different than they are, you know, here in a, in a civilian, you know, situation. So not to confuse the issue, by the same token, uh, you know, every every Marine is a, is a rifleman, and they do have been trained, you know, when to use force, when to use force to defend themselves. So the fact that as a sniper, I don't necessarily know if that's what he was falling back up on. I mean, I, I have a little bit of question about that. And the only reason I mention this is there's just a lot of guys I know that are real familiar with this stuff that might sure. kind of take issue. Uh, with, you know, what that attorney said. And I just want to let, yeah, I, I understand why you would say that. Yeah, understood. I'm glad you clarified that. But, but Don, about the legal liability of uh, relying or, or giving somebody uh, suggestions on when you're unarmed and they are. Clearly that happened. That caused uh, Kavanaugh some problems here. Yeah, I... Wish I had a better handle on the precise sequence of events and what exactly was said, because it would still be interesting to talk about and maybe more helpful if we could establish that there were clear facts that we could rely on in making our decisions and having our discussion on how the legal principles would enter in. But I have to assume 
that if she said shoot him or shoot, that she meant that because she felt she was in danger of being run over. Had she said, he's trying to run me over, shoot him, there wouldn't be much question about what she meant, and then it would have been a lot easier for Gray to make his decision to, in fact, try to protect her by coming to her aid. And under those circumstances, he would be privileged to use deadly force to protect her if, in fact, uh, it, it was consistent with his perception that he was trying to, to run her over. What we don't know and what I'm a little concerned about is whether the shoot him may have been in response to him trying to get away. And then, of course, simply because someone's told to shoot somebody because they're uh, trying to get away does not in any way justify the use of deadly force in that situation. So we, we have a lot of confusion here. The other thing that we can't rely on as we talk about this is that Gray was not guilty and that Kavanaugh was guilty. Um, And I say that because they had two different juries in two separate settings. Had they been tried together and the jury had looked at these facts and acquitted Gray and convicted Kavanaugh, then we would have a much clearer idea, I think, of how they perceived this event unfolding. But as I touched upon earlier, we had two separate trials, uh, two separate juries, different lawyers, and um, it may very well have been that the jury that convicted Kavanaugh would have also convicted Gray, whereas the jury that acquitted Gray may have also acquitted Kavanaugh. That's just the frailty of the jury system, the criminal justice system. And that's why when people talk about subjecting yourself to what we've called the second fight, the first one to protect your life, the second one to protect your liberty, is that it's a crapshoot. It's always a crapshoot to some degree. The percentages may be in your favor. But if you wind up getting prosecuted for a serious offense, there's at least some chance that you'll get convicted. Yeah. And this could be one of those cases where it was just the crapshoot that the jury that acquitted Gray was more favorable or the lawyers better than the one that convicted Kavanaugh and that they didn't see necessarily that one was more guilty than the other. Yeah, and I don't know this to be true, but we, we do know that Kavanaugh's denied at her trial that she said shoot him. But it may very well be the fact, or it's possible anyway, that in Gray's trial, which happened, um, well, that happened second, didn't it? I don't know. A fact that could be in dispute in one trial might not be in dispute in the other trial and can work a different way. If one jury believed that uh, Kavanaugh said, don't shoot him, or, or shoot him, and that's partially why Gray fired, and they took that into consideration, that's one thing. And then it might be that that fact's in dispute in Kavanaugh's trial, and the jury thinks a different way about it. You know, it's uh, if you try the same case twice, just the facts that the judge allows the jury to consider could change depending on how rulings go, right? 
Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, Kavanaugh was convicted and then Gray was acquitted right. in the sequence of, that we have here. So. Okay, right. So, I mean, it's just, to your point, just illustrates uh, how much you're thrown up in the air when you take these things to, to trial. And let, let's talk about the legal... Go ahead, Don. Well, just a, just pointing out, there are lots and lots of cases that result in a different outcome uh, after a successful appeal or after a mistrial. Sometimes there's a mistrial because of some misconduct. It could be uh, a comment on the right to remain silent or something that might be grounds for an immediate mistrial because of the possibility of prejudice. But in fact, maybe there was no prejudice ultimately. And yet you try the case the second time after a conviction, the judge grants an after the fact mistrial, you try it again and the person's acquitted with a different jury. That's happened to me personally. I've had cases that were mistried or where I got a new trial after a conviction, tried the case again with a new jury a couple of weeks later, and the individual was was acquitted. That's how close a call some of these cases are, and yet the consequence on the person being subjected to the process could be the difference between, literally, between walking out the door or spending 5, 10, 20 years in prison. Yeah. So... Which, of course, is why we, we preach and, and emphasize the importance of avoiding the conflict altogether, and if you can't, to be sure that you stay within the legal boundaries so that if your conduct is reviewed by law enforcement, ultimately by a prosecutor, that they see that you were in fact facing this imminent threat of great bodily harm or death and that your deadly force response was warranted under the law. So, so to reinforce how crazy the political pro- or the uh, the legal process can be, Kavanaugh gets convicted for her accomplice role, but then uh, the almost a year later, on appeal, the New Hampshire Supreme Court reverses, uh, basically vacates the conviction because. It looks like the jury wasn't given a self-defense instruction before they rendered their verdict, and and that was enough for the Supreme Court to decide that she deserved a new trial. That's fairly common in terms of appellate review and how a case could be reversed on appeal that may actually have very little to do with the facts. However, uh, in terms of why the jury uh, convicted or, or acquitted, but in this case, Kavanaugh's lawyer asked for a self-defense instruction, and the trial court denied the instruction. And when the conviction and the appeal later occurred, a feature of the appeal was the fact that the lawyer asked for a self-defense instruction and the trial court denied it. So even though the appellate court offered that there was enough evidence in the record to convict her, uh, nonetheless, the failure to give the self-defense instruction 
was reversible error and they remanded the case for a new trial. In a self-defense scenario, we all know that now in all 50 states, the prosecutor has the burden of proving its case beyond a reasonable doubt. And when self-defense is raised, in addition to proving the elements of the crimes charged, they also must disprove any claim of self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. In order to get the court to give a self-defense instruction, there has to be some evidence in the record in support of self-defense. That evidence could come in during the prosecution case through cross-examination. It could come in through the defense case, through a witness's testimony, more likely through the accused or the defendant's testimony. But the amount of evidence is very, very small. Certainly doesn't need to be enough that the judge is convinced that there is substantial evidence, even a preponderance of evidence, much less evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to show self-defense. Only in some locations, they call it a scintilla, just a little tiny bit. It's just enough to have credible, or I I should say admissible evidence of self-defense is enough legally to require the judge to give the instruction. And by giving the instruction, what that means is that the jury is allowed to consider self-defense in its decision. They would receive jury instructions on what self-defense means, what the circumstances are under which self-defense is an affirmative, successful defense, etc., etc. Without the instruction, the lawyers can't argue it and the jury can't legally consider it in their verdict. So the consequence... It is. It's a huge deal. Um, And in this instance, even if the evidence was substantial against Kavanaugh and that there was very, very little evidence of self-defense, the failure to give the instruction under a circumstance where it was warranted deprived Kavanaugh of self-defense completely. So that's yeah. why the, the court reversed it and remanded the case for a new trial, requiring in the new, in the new trial that the judge provide that instruction. And so what's interesting here is that we've learned just recently that there's not, in fact, going to be a new trial because it looks like Kavanaugh's lawyers and the prosecutors have agreed to some sort of plea that they're going to argue before the court in a couple of weeks. In fact, it might be by the time this podcast comes out, it, it will have been decided, and I'll make a uh, an update in my introduction or conclusion here. But do you... That's not uncommon, I think, to where if you... Even if you win on appeal, that... I know this happened with the Marissa Alexander case. She, she won an appeal to her conviction... But then by the time she had already spent some time in jail or other considerations, uh, pleading out to avoid the pain of a second trial and the uh, the uncertainty that could come along with it. I'll tell you, in the Kavanaugh case, uh, there was sentencing here where the judge sentenced Kavanaugh to two to five years in straight prison on the felony charge of criminal liability to first degree assault. But he suspended the entire sentence pending good behavior and 
apparently he had the discretion to do that where he was. And going back to another trial where you could be convicted of the same things, but maybe without the same judge who would be willing to look at your career as a law enforcement officer and suspend two to five years in prison. Now you're making big bets about whether you want to go back to trial, aren't you? In this case, she was actually sentenced, I think, to a year in jail, and about eight months of that was suspended. So she would have to have served about four months, and then there may have been some additional sentencing requirements, maybe some probation and some things. So she had the prison sentence, which she would not have had to have served, subject to her good behavior and not violating any of the conditions, but she she did have several months in jail and some other sentencing conditions. So I believe that when the new trial was granted, that would have been the context in which they would have then negotiated a resolution. So my my belief is that the four months in jail probably went away and that there's probably going to be an agreement of some sort that would not involve actual incarceration, maybe some additional community service, maybe some other things. It may have also included dismissing one or more of the charges, uh, which the prosecution has the sole discretion to do. On a new trial, everything starts over, and the prosecutor could dismiss or negotiate away some of the more serious charges, the defense can certainly agree to any sentence that's proposed that seems to serve its purpose. And I have to believe in this case, if there has been a fully negotiated resolution, which is what the press release said, that it's highly likely that the judge will go along with it. Uh, in, in, in a typical plea case, the she, most cases are ultimately resolved by a plea agreement of some sort, statistically uh, well in excess of 90%. Sometimes the plea is made to the court where you simply plead no contest or guilty to all of the charges. The prosecutor is kind of out of it at that point, and then the judge imposes whatever sentence is appropriate. In other circumstances, and probably the far more common one, is when there's a discussion and a negotiation with the prosecutor where one or more charges may be dropped or the levels reduced, and there can be a plea and the judge determines sentencing. But even more common is when both the charges are addressed and the sentence is part of the negotiation. So when it comes time to present it to the judge, there's been an agreement as to the charges themselves and an agreement as to what the sentence will be on each of the charges. So that it's uh, fully negotiated, fully resolved means that the judge will be told what the parties have agreed to. And then, uh, assuming it doesn't offend the sensibilities of the court or somehow the, the judge thinks it's simply unfair to somebody, uh, typically, the judge agrees to the sentence that's been negotiated and then imposes sentence, accepts the plea, and imposes sentence consistent with the agreement. Gotcha. That's a long, that's a long legal road for a split-second decision. 
even though I suspect that Kavanaugh will come out of this okay, uh, meaning that she may not go to jail at all. She's still going likely to have some sort of criminal record. In some jurisdictions, the court has the authority to withhold adjudication and still impose sentence of up to a year in jail and some additional conditions, maybe lengthy probation, but not formally adjudicate, which means there can, down the road, be an opportunity to seal a record or even expunge a record. That's sort of state by state. But even if that's the case, and eventually this goes behind her, it has affected her life significantly and will continue to affect her life for years to come. So your comments are not to be taken lightly. When, you, when you're involved in something that puts you in the middle of the criminal justice system, there's never a great outcome. There's only degrees of not as bad. And then there's a civil justice system at play here as well. And this is something we don't talk about a lot, but there's a lawsuit against Gray, and I, I don't know if Kavanaugh is part of it, uh, by the family of the kid who was on the the other side of those bullets that Gray fired. And um, I, I don't often those things get settled confidentially and they don't play out in the press the way criminal cases go, but th- there could be significant financial consequences to them for this, even if there aren't significant criminal consequences. Well, there have already been significant financial consequences to both of them. They had to hire lawyers. They hired lawyers. No doubt experts were involved. They both went to jury trials. Kavanaugh had an appeal and now is going back, and she won't have to face a second trial because they resolved it uh, through a plea negotiation. But their legal fees are substantial. The stakes they were facing were substantial, and the legal fees are substantial. Both of the lawyers involved did a lot of good work, and uh, uh, now Gray is facing the civil suit, so he has to defend that as well. His assets are at risk, and um, a verdict against him could result in his loss of all of the money that he's acquired over the course of his lifetime, frankly. It's highly unlikely that Gray has any kind of uh, insurance uh, that would cover the civil side. When I say insurance, I mean homeowner's insurance typically does not cover these kinds of incidents. So unless Gray actually was a member of an organization like CCW Safe or one of the others in that industry, He is likely bearing the entire cost of this himself. And even though he was acquitted by the jury in the criminal case, the civil case is a different case, different different legal issues, different standard. It's going to be a different jury, going to be a different uh, standard of proof, burden of proof. And um, yeah, he has considerable exposure, I think. Fortunately for him and for Mr. DeLima, there were no serious injuries. So I don't know where the damages will ultimately settle, but he's going to have to endure that process for months and months to come. Steve, I had a question for you based on something that you said earlier in our conversation. And it is that 
although chasing Dilema out of the house and across the lawn into the street was was bad judgment, that chasing an intruder out of your home can often be the right thing to do. But we've also talked to you on this podcast about, remember, the uh, Charles Dorsey case where there was an intruder trying to get in the front door and we talked about finding the hard corner in your home where you had a more defensible place and you could make sure that the person at the front door really meant you the harm. And, and walk me through the difference uh, of the thought process of in your home when when you engage an intruder or when you ensconce yourself in a highly defensible place and wait for the intruder to find you. Uh, I engage the intruder when the situation is such that I have a third party in another part of the house that I am uh, obligated or I've chosen to be obligated to protect me. If it's just me or if it's just my wife and myself and we're both in the same room, uh, we're not chasing them out. If it's, and actually when I say chasing them out, what I really mean is, is that I've gone out and I've encountered someone uh, somewhat unexpectedly uh, and I did, the reason I left was because I needed to protect someone else. I needed to make sure that that person did not remain in my house necessarily and pose a threat. Or in many instances, when they immediately break contact, I would follow that person. Again, you know, I'm, I'm protecting a, a third, another person outside of, you know, anybody in my own room. And I want to make sure that they exit the premises. And so basically, I just want to make sure that I now have a secure, you know, I've secured my home and that everyone is 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 okay. So that would be the difference between the two for me. So I, I mean, what if you are in a hard position and uh, you encountered somebody, that person immediately fled you'd consider leaving that position to make sure that they left the house. I would, only reason I would leave is because I had a, someone in another part of my house that I needed to protect. Uh, I went in there to protect them and uh, perhaps they then ran out or they were in the process of leaving that room. As I came, uh, I wanted to make sure at that particular point, probably that that person is completely out of my house. Yeah, I, I got it. Are there any other lessons from your perspective from this case that are worth talking about, Steve? Well, uh, absolutely, had? absolutely. You know, the number one lesson is is that, okay, would they have made the same decision to go out in that yard and do what they did had Gray not had a firearm with them? Did that firearm uh, embolden him? Okay, so number one if it's not safe to do it without a firearm, it's definitely not safe to do it with a firearm. I believe that we addressed a case at some point where it was a, a bit of a road rage incident in which one person, I believe, inadvertently cut off another. He was stopped in traffic, and the, uh, the, the, the raging motorist encountered him. Well, indeed, I believe that the, the, the person that inadvertently caused the, you know, the engagement and everything. Uh, he had a gun, and if I recall, 
during the fire fight, they both died. So yeah, basically, the fact about. that you, yeah, the, basically the fact that you had he had a gun did not make it safer for him. So don't let the fact that you have a firearm in your possession help steer your decisions. And then two, just remember your role, and your role is not to arrest those people or cause their arrest or detain those people. You know, sure, if you capture someone uh, in your home and they stay right there, uh, I guess that you could go ahead, hold them at gunpoint, uh, but by the same token, uh, there's no shame if that person, you perceive that, okay, there's a possibility if I stay in here, uh, you know what, this could go, this could go bad, is allowing that person to leave, you know, keep them in a position, get their hands up on top of their head, walk them out of the house, and then, you know, watch them exit, make a, you know, a note of uh, what direction they went, uh, secure your house, go back to your bedroom, secure that area, and then call 911. Don, do you have any final thoughts on this case? Just to add a little bit to what Steve said, in terms of introducing the firearm to uh, a dynamic situation, I think that people forget that when they display a firearm for the purpose of causing someone to do something or not to do something, that you have no control over what they're actually going to do. And it's entirely possible that the display of the firearm or the introduction of the firearm into it will provoke a response that's completely different than what you anticipated and may very well put you in a situation where you feel like you need to use it. And I think this may be one of those cases where it was the firearm, the shots being fired, that caused uh, Lalima to react the way he did, not because it was clear he was trying to run them over, but he was panicked because of his fear of being shot that caused him in his position behind the wheel of a vehicle to try to get out of there. So uh, that raised the stakes considerably. It resulted in more shots being fired and ultimately it resulted in the criminal prosecution of Gray and Kavanaugh, all of which I think if Steve's advice had been well heeded, uh, that none of that would have happened. In fact, going back to the very beginning of this, if they had locked their door before going to bed, none of this may have happened either. Well, Don, I like a little full circle resonance on a conversation. That sounds like a great place to leave this one today. Hey, Sean, let me add one more thing just Please to see. add on to what Don said, because I, I think he said that so very well. And, you know, uh, somehow it, it came into uh, people's attention that she had said, shoot him. And uh, the question then might become, did she say, obviously someone heard that if she denied it and that came up. So if she said shoot him and shots had not been fired, uh, it might also have been a possibility that that caused uh, Delima to respond in the manner that he did. 
And so sometimes the very terminology, or not, I, I shouldn't say terminology, but the words that we use and the way that we use them can also cause someone to, you know, react in a manner that, okay, they're just trying to save their own life that just creates, you know, just kind of a, a series of, of, you know, misfortunes here. So I think that's something also, you know, to give into consideration is that if you're yelling at someone to shoot someone else, uh, what do you think that person is going to do? All right, that's the end of the conversation, but I did promise you I'd let you know what the result was for Brenda Kavanaugh just uh, earlier this week. We've got reports from the local newspaper that the plea deal that Kavanaugh agreed to to avoid another trial is going to require her to complete 150 hours of community service within six months, and quote-unquote, she needs to meaningly or uh, meaningfully participate in and complete counseling treatment and educational programs as directed and to make restitution to the victim in this case that's the teenager that they fired upon uh what that restitution is is not clear but what the result here is is that we've got somebody who participated in a self-defense shooting but didn't fire the weapon themselves and still faced uh, significant legal liability in the aftermath for uh, a very, very imperfect self-defense situation. Uh, Thanks, you guys, for listening uh, into the end. Uh, Until next time, uh, be smart, stay safe, take care.